0: Good morning. Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews 3, verses seven through 12. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father. brothers, you speak to us through your word today. Father, give us the grace. Please soften our hearts. Let us have ears to hear and eyes to see and then mouths to speak. All for your glory and for our good, in Jesus' name, amen, amen. More like dried, nasty raisins. I much prefer the crunch of a fresh, juicy grape than the squish of a dried raisin drained of all of its wonderful and juicy vitality. If you'll indulge my metaphor for just a moment then allow me to draw this connection. It seems as though some of us much prefer the tacky squish of a hardened and dried up soul to the delightful crunch of a heart bursting full of life. Why else would we, or you, Leave your heart out there to dry up. Or why else would we at times neglect nutrients for our souls? Why else would you skip a meal like Sunday morning for stupid and foolish reasons? Why else would we at moments stop considering Jesus? Other than for this reason, at times... We much prefer a heart that looks more like a dull, dry, shriveled raisin you found when reaching your hand between the couch cushions, looking for the remote control, over and above a vibrant soul, reaching further up and further in to the glory of God. Some of us prefer a soul that looks more like a dried raisin. Hold fast and boast are two of the words we landed on in the passage last week, and I would have to say two words that don't seem to have a home in the current Christian culture that you and I find ourselves in. We much prefer, it seems, words like hold loose and look pious, or weak and silent, or victim and self-deprecation. I can hear the Christians now, maybe even some in this room, saying, hold fast. Well, that sounds legalistic. That sounds like pull yourself by your bootstraps. Or boast. Man, that person is arrogant. Don't you know we're supposed to be weak? We live in a cultural moment where if one Christian were to walk up to another Christian in life circumstances that are less than fortunate... And the conversation went something like this Hey, I know life has been a little tough. How are you doing? And that person in those life circumstances was to say something like, You know, I'm good. I'm doing great. God is good. As the kids these days would say, That's sus. You would most likely be suspicious. I bet they're just putting up a front. I bet they're hiding their hurt. I bet they're suppressing the reality of their circumstances or running from something or escaping from it. Listen, those things could be true, but it could also be true that that person really is fine and good. It could be that you, who are not actually in the situation, could be having a harder time trusting the Lord than the person in the situation itself. But those are the words we landed on last week. Hold fast, boast. Indeed, he lands on, you will remain God's house if you hold fast and boast. Now, before we get too far, hold fast to what? Boast in What? Those are key aspects to this. It's not just hold fast to whatever you want to, or boast in whatever you want to, or have a boastful attitude in whatever you want to, or hold fast in whatever you want to. We hold fast to what? To our confidence in what God has done through Jesus. We boast in what? The hope that Jesus will finish building his house. We hold fast to what God has done to through Christ, and we boast in what Jesus, that he will finish the house he's building. But that's a big if statement. If we will do this. If we will do this. This week, he's going to show us, the author's going to show us what happens if we don't hold fast. If we don't boast this is the downside. I was thinking as I was getting to preparing to preach this, even as Karen was reading the passage for us this morning. I mean, I'm the one that generally plans the preaching schedule, but I tend to get these passages that are warnings and negative and does not make us feel good. But here we are in this passage. If you don't hold fast, if you don't boast, these are the things that will happen. My first point for you, first uh, imperative is don't harden your heart. Don't harden your heart. We are all, it doesn't matter whether you're an unbeliever or whether you just became a Christian or you've been a Christian for decades, the imperative is still for you. Don't harden your heart. The danger of a hardened heart is for all of us don't harden your heart it is an imperative read with me hebrews chapter 3 verse 7 through 11 therefore as the holy spirit says today if you hear his voice do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years therefore i as god speaking was was provoked with that generation and said, They always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. I'm going to encourage you this week, go back and read Psalm 95. That's where that's coming from. But it's speaking of passages in Exodus. Now, before we get to too much application here, let's, let's define hardening your heart. What is hardening your heart? First of all, the hardened heart of verse 8, so he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion, is essentially equal to the evil unbelieving heart of verse 12, right? So if you, if you don't have your Bibles, I'm encouraged you to have your Bibles so you can like bounce back and forth with me. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be, in verse 12, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. This hardened heart is akin to this evil, unbelieving heart of verse 12. Now, heart in this passage, another key thing to understanding heart, is not just emotions or affections. He's communicating to us the whole person, the head, the mind, the will, the emotions, so we have the hardened heart is this also this evil, unbelieving heart. And it's more than just the emotions, but the will, the mind, and the emotions. Now keep that in your head, and let's talk just for a moment about our cultural moment that we're in. Because this is, it's important, and we do this frequently. We talk about what's the cultural moment that we're in. Why is that important? So that we know what's pressing in on us. And so we know that, so we know or we're aware of what we are likely to be believing so that we can rekey it, so that we can fix it, we can repent of it and believe the right thing. So what is the cultural moment? The cultural moment right now for us, not just outside the church, but inside the church as well, is shall we rule over our inner selves or do we submit to our inner selves? Is it king or is something else king? Now the world believes what your kids are being taught by their pagan teachers, social media, Disney, and beyond is that your outward life must bend to your inward life in order for you to be most morally good. Not just so that things make sense, but you're actually most righteous if you make the external line up with the internal. Righteousness is earned by being true, to yourself. That's probably the most common phrase. I can be true to myself. You, you know, when do people get patted on the back, right? Well, he's just being true to himself. He's just, he's just being authentic, right? Authentic. That's, that's the key word in our world. I just want someone who's authentic. This is, this is at root in the transgender movement, the most moral good one can do is make their body line up with the way they think or feel about their gender inside. And consequently, you and I can only be morally good if we embrace that insanity. All right, now let's bring this home, because you might be like, all right, all right, that's maybe not quite in my realm of struggle, but, but let's bring it home. Most of us have the tendency to treat our inner person our feelings, even our desires, as though they are sovereign. And others, as though they are at the mercy of those things. Well, that's just the way I feel. Or maybe another example is, well, we have a thought and we don't interrogate that thought, but rather just simply embrace it as true. I mean, how many times you have a thought come in and you just, just let it go, you let it ride. You ever stop to think about that thought? (laughs) Have a thought about the thought? And whether or not you should have the thought that you've just let take root in your mind? You should be thinking about what you're thinking. Maybe thinking about what you're thinking about, what you're thinking, you know, you get my point. You should be thinking about what you're feeling. You should consider that. Or we have an emotion, and again, we don't stop and think. Is that emotion revealing something good inside me or something bad? Or we desire something. And how often do we just assume that that desire is good and that the world must align with that desire? So again, these, we, we would, many of us would not succumb or say we're in the realm of the first category of that craziness, but yet this is where it's crept into our own minds. The way I think, the way I feel, and decide inside is how the world around me must adhere. How often do we do that to our spouses or to our kids? Our kids. I just feel this way, and so my kids need to align to that way. Man, what, Mom and dad, what if the way you feel is stupid? Now you're asking your kids to align to something that's stupid. You're gonna raise someone who's stupid. Here's, a, here's an example. <clears throat> referring to preaching, I, I've heard this so many times. I, I feel like people Google this in their reasons for leaving a church. I don't feel fed right? And the assumption is that, therefore, the preacher isn't feeding. Now, listen, that could be true. There are a lot of bad preachers around. But it could also be true that that person's mouth and stomach is so full of garbage that when the food bowl of God's bountiful word is passed, you simply handed it on to the next person, saying, I'm full, I'm good, Practically, what happens? You exchange the moment of feeding, maybe for thinking about the football schedule for the day, or your homework that you need to go over with your kids this evening. Again, it's not necessarily that the thoughts in there are are, are necessarily bad; they could be bad, but it's foolishness in the moment. And then you wonder why I'm not fed. Well, you passed when the bowl was presented. So here's my point. It's just because you think or feel a certain way doesn't mean it's based on the truth. I mean, there used to be a day when this kind of thing was just considered basic logic, right? There was a day where, you know, probably 50, 60 years ago, where it wasn't just assumed that the way I felt inside is what was ruling the day or was necessarily right. But rather the author, and here's why I'm pressing in on this so hard, is that the author here is telling us to rule over, that there should be a ruling over the inward being. He's giving an imperative, both in the Psalms passage, that's referring to Exodus, and in verse 12. He's saying, don't harden your hearts. So he's saying, your will, your mind, your emotions there should be a control over those things. They should be brought into submission under the truth, under reality. That we're to exercise control or power over all of that, to bring it into submission under something. We'll get to that something in a moment. And he says, to not do this, to fail to protect the heart from hardening, will lead to, or is akin to, verse 12, this evil, unbelieving heart. He's telling us, listen, and this, is, this should be both like a warning and an encouragement. He's telling us that we have the ability, albeit by God's grace, certainly, to choose to feed our souls and to keep it more like a ripe, in-seasoned grape and less like the dried-up raisin between the couch cushions. We have the ability to protect our hearts from hardening. That's a gift. I don't know if you understand. That's a gift given to us. Our proclivity is like that of Pharaoh's, and that is to have a hardened heart already before God even hardens Pharaoh's heart even further. Now, a quick caveat as we think about hardening. It's not an all or nothing. It's not either you have a hard heart or you have a soft heart. That's not being implied in this passage. It's not being explicitly said in the passage. So don't read it into the passage. It's on a continuum that fluctuates moment by moment. It could be hardening for the next 24 hours and then softening the next. It could be soft in one area of your life and hard in another area of your life. Now, as you have one hard area that goes unchecked, it will eventually harden in the rest of those areas. That's the proclivity. That's why he's giving us the warning. Because our proclivity is towards hardened hearts. So he's saying, don't harden your heart. And my, the reason I give you that caveat is because it's easy for you to be sitting here thinking, oh, oh like I'm enjoying the word here, and, 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 I am, and I think I'm going to check all the boxes of softening my heart. And then later, today, you're going to be hardening your heart in some way or some fashion you are got to be on the lookout. Don't just check some boxes now and say, I'm good the rest of the day. That's my caveat. It's not an all or nothing. Don't read that in the text. But he is telling us, you believers, right? remember that's, the, that's who he's writing to, do something so that you don't have an evil, unbelieving heart. We'll get to that something to do in just a moment. I just want you to see for the moment, though, that he's telling you that you can, if you're a follower of God, with the word of God, and the spirit of God, and the power of the resurrection, that you can, and that you must take charge of the hardening and the softening of your soul. That you can, and that you must. Now this hardness, or defining this hardening, it's not just a state of being, but it's also something with real consequences. A hardened soul, again, is this unbelieving soul. The hardened soul is unbelieving the truth of God, okay? So you got to connect. That's not just he's a grumpy old man, or that's a, a crotchety old man, or a grumpy old woman. They've got a hard heart. They're callous. That's That's not That doesn't get to the point here. The point is that they're hardened towards something. And they're hardened towards the truth of God. So when they hear it, it's like hard ground. You ever seen like dry, 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 hard ground, and then a flash flood hits that ground? What happens to most of the water? It just runs off. That's the picture here. That's the hardened heart. When they hear the truth, it just runs off of them. Just runs off. The heart and soul is unbelieving, not believing the truth of God. Again, that means you and I have the ability and the responsibility to say, "I will believe this. I won't believe that." But again, I think we've bought into this like culture that what I believe. Is just outside of my control and it's just however I feel in the moment and and that's what I believe and I'm kind of at the whim or at the mercy of the whims but he's telling us here to pick your thoughts up out of this garbage hole and place them over here in your holiday at the beach as C.S. Lewis would say don't settle for these that you actually have the ability to say no to this belief and say yes to this belief. Hebrews 3, 7 says this, Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. If you hear what? His voice. Now, in the context here of Hebrews 3, God spoke in the Old Testament God's speaking to the Hebrews here. God speaks today. Well, how does God speak today? God speaks from his word. Listen, he isn't talking here about hearing from God, quote, unquote. God might lay something on your heart, certainly, but at best, that thing is always subjective and always debatable. What he's talking about here, though, is the clear, objective word of God that is provable, that is readable, that is solid, that is objective, that is transcendent, that is true no matter your circumstance. Now don't miss this. When he says the Holy Spirit said, he himself, the author of Hebrews, is not just pulling something out of his rear. He quotes Psalm 95. Why? Because this is what the Spirit says. This is what God says. Hebrews, don't, don't quote me on this, please, I think quotes the Old Testament more than any other book in the New Testament. Why? Because he really, when he says, God says, or today if you hear his voice, he's thinking, I've heard God's voice. I've read it. Today, to you, tomorrow, if you want to hear God's voice, just go read it. It's that simple. It's that simple. The question is whether or not you will actually hear it. And that's the hardening side of this. The hardened heart does not believe the truth of God when he hears it, when he reads it. He's rejected it. He's deviating from it or in the process of deviating from it. Listen, this means in part, if you've been around here for a while, we've heard us say this many times. When you hear God's word, you always have two options. You have the option of placing yourself in content and satisfied submission to it, or place yourself in a hard hearted authority over it. That's your choice, your two choices. You should write that down. Unbelief is in contrast here, oh, catch this, to the faithfulness in the preceding passage. Okay, the unbelief is in contrast here to the faithfulness in the preceding passage. Now, I, I can't repreach last week's sermon on consider this, or consider, but what's he saying? He's, the, the whole idea of consider Jesus is believe the truth concerning Jesus. And all that God has said, and all that God has done, Jesus represents that. The fullness of God. When you consider Jesus, you're considering the fullness of God. Well, Moses and Christ were faithful because they continued to believe rightly concerning God. They continued with softened hearts. Of course, Jesus, ultimately, perfectly, Moses had some failures in there, but yet he was labeled as a faithful example for us. So every time you hear God's voice, meaning the Bible, right, you have two choices. Sorry, I just, hold up. I just held up four fingers. You have two choices. If you're on my right, you have two choices. If you're on my left, you have two choices. There you go. Not four. Right now, you have those same two choices. As we talk about the Word of God, you can have a hard heart or a soft heart. Now, as we press into this a little further, you know, as, as we go each week, we're just going to take another step a little further into the water. Let's be clear the hard-heartedness is not just a state of being but it's in response or in relation to God's truth but it's not even just that in this passage that hard-heartedness that has an unbelieving heart is called evil in verse 12 it's called evil in verse 12 back up in the psalm quoting passage it's called rebellion i don't know if you know this but those are the same thing okay like they have their own nuances, but they're, they're the same thing. Rebellion against God is evil, and evil is rebellion against God. So it's not just, oh, poor so-and-so, or poor me. I've just got a hard heart, or they just have a hard heart. No, verse 12 says, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart. And what does this produce? Leading you to fall away from the living God that's the same picture as the rebellion that he's referring to in the book of Exodus. So let's take for a moment and look at the rebellion <clears throat> this rebellion that is this evil unbelieving heart that this hard heart is leading to, okay? He promised, sorry, right, so now take your mind and just Bring it out of Hebrews and let's just go set it into like the Israelites in the wilderness for a moment. That's going to be our context for the next bit. God promised to care for the Israelites, to lead them out of slavery, right? Which represents their bondage to sin. That's the picture painted for us into God's care under His rule and His place. And He promised to care for them and He proved it at this point in the context for 40 years and now. They're rebelling against God. Let's look at the story. Again, they're rescued from slavery in Egypt. They walk on dry ground through the Red Sea. That then swallows up the, the Egyptians. And now they've lived for 40 years in the wilderness. And in just the chapter before, if you go back, we're going to be in Exodus 17 here in a second. But if you go back to like chapter 16, In just the chapter before, they had quail come and cover the camp. Like God sent them quail. Have anybody here eaten quail? Okay, It's pretty good. You just have to eat like 30 of them. So God, I'm sure, provided lots of them. And then, as the dew would dry in the mornings, there was manna left on the ground. All right, so that happened, that was happening for 40 years. Get that in your head. For 40 years before, right before this moment, God did this for 40 years. Verse 17, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 17, verse 1. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, and camped at Rephidim. But there was no water for the people to drink. Oh, my goodness, So Moses cried to the Lord, "What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me." And the Lord said to Moses, "Pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and taking your hand and uh, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. So God asks them to move on to a new place, a new residence, and there's no water. Now remember. For 40 years of provision, they were provided all that they needed for 40 years. It's like all of a sudden, they've all been struck with amnesia, but not just one person. Millions of people all happened to be struck with amnesia. All of a sudden, they turned from holding fast and boasting in hope to whining and complaining like a bunch of soft babies. I mean, maybe there was soy in the manna or something. There were such babies that they preferred stoning Moses, their deliverer, and slavery in Egypt rather than the tough but glorious journey of following God. That's what they preferred. That's nuts. Let's not miss this. They're testing the Lord even though he answered them with further provision, if you read on or if you read on later, was considered rebellion. God had proved himself. They rebelled. And even though God still continued to provide for them, it's considered rebellion. Why? Because unbelief always says God is a liar unbelief always says, God is a liar. You want to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? There you go. And we all do this many times every day. Because they were saying, I mean, think about this practically. Take that unbelief and put it in this practical moment, all right? And we just do this sometimes in smaller scales, sometimes in bigger scales. In that moment... God had provided for them for 40 years, but they are saying God will not provide for us anymore. God will not provide for us. He's not trustworthy. He led us out here to die. We'd rather go back to slavery. What are they saying? Instead of belief and trust in God, I'd rather go back to slavery and sin. Here's the unfortunate truth. We harden our hearts for much less they had been in slavery for hundreds of years faced with starvation in this moment and what happens they succumb to ingratitude and unbelief but let's paint the real picture here they were out in the wilderness they could literally die them their offspring their grandparents all of them their kids could die their livestock could die And we harden our hearts because another church member said something unkind, or we walked out of a sermon not feeling fed, or our finances are not quite the way I want, or my body isn't working quite the way I wish it would, or my relationships aren't fulfilling me, or my child won't quite get in line, or I don't like this church policy or that one. We trade in our soft hearts for a cheap song and dance. What would happen if you and I were out in the wilderness faced with actual death? Wouldn't be a whole lot of hope for us in that moment. We harden our hearts for much less. Because an unbelief finds its practical issue in disobedience. Unbelief leads to disobedience. Look at verse 9 through 10 of, of Hebrews 3. This is after the hard and heart language and so on and so forth. He says, where your fathers, this is in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. All right, let's stop for a second. Their hearts always go astray. That's the language of the psalmist, quoting God, representing God. They always go astray. And they have not known my ways. God's saying they have not known my ways. See the connectedness here. Unbelief always results in wrong behavior. Unbelief and wrong behavior. These things go together. They're tied. If you want to write down something, hearts astray lead to evil ways. Hearts astray lead to evil ways. If you want to see someone who, if you want, listen, if you want to understand, someone who's living in evil ways has a heart that has gone astray. I have in my notes, turn to your neighbor and say, hearts astray lead to evil ways. (laughs) You don't have to do that, I'm just kidding. I thought I'd go Pentecostal for a moment. What's interesting in this passage, though, just just look, just just ask yourself good questions when you're reading the Bible. Like, what? He just said, I showed them my ways for 40 years, and he's saying now they don't know my ways. What's happening? I think it's simple. Psalm 115, 4 through 8, their idols are silver. Meaning these people who make these idols. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths. So the people who make these idols are like their idols, he says, having mouths, but do not speak, have eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, but do not walk, or feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make these idols become like them. And so do all who trust in them. You see, it's at this moment for the Israelites, instead of saying, you know what? This is what, this is, guys, this is what should have happened. You know what? God has fed us for 40 years. He is trustworthy. He is good. I will press on holding fast to my confession of God and boasting in hope that he will continue to build his house. Instead, they say, I will trade it in for a shack in slave town eating the plantation owner's scraps after he beats me with his whip. That's what they'd rather trade it in for. And when you and I choose sin, Rather than belief, we are saying the same thing. I'd rather have my old slave owner. Now what's God's response? He says he was provoked, and he swears that they will not enter his rest. Even this side of the cross, someone who hardens their heart to what God has said will not enter God's rest ever. Ever. The best hope they have is a comfortable mattress in hell. What's the result? Listen, we live in the wilderness at times, at least for moments, without rest, when we choose unbelief. And if that continues, if we do not hold fast and persevere, Then we will not be His house. That's the warning, and we will not enter God's eternal rest. That's what's at stake. The second point is this: How to not harden your heart? How to not harden your heart? Again, back to verse seven. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then verse 12, he says, take care, brothers. Now, before we get onto that fun stuff, I want to give you a guide to hardening your heart, okay? First of all, steps to harden your heart. Here we go. If you want to write down this list later, you can. You won't be able to keep up right now. A guide to hardening your heart. Embrace the way you think and feel as sovereign. Always feed your discontentment and complaining spirit with more things to complain about and especially do that with your spouse Read your Bible on Sunday and think about it maybe once or twice during the week Right now look at your watch and calculate how much time is left until this is likely over (laughs) Someone thought that was funny Get you some good friends with equally hardened hearts and go post things. Make sure you keep your spouse happy. That's more important than, having, than them having a soft heart. Or make lastly, make sure your issues are always with others and never with God himself. You are sure to have a hardened heart if you'll follow these steps. But he says take care, take care. Another way to say like take care is to Uh, see to it. Like, see to it. There's an urgent warning implying that there is an urgent cause for apprehension. Meaning like, put your hand to this plow. Do something about it. Ensure your soul's protection So so much as it depends on you, which I think we need to first wrestle for just a moment with our responsibility here versus God's. Well, you get in this whole like sovereignty, free will conversation, that, that whole thing that tends to distract people. Remember, we work in the house. I talked about this last week. We work in the house while Jesus is the builder of the house. So you and I have a very real responsibility to pursue a softened heart towards God and his words, a trusting heart, a grateful heart, a content heart, a satisfied heart. I will trust him, and I will go. But we do that, and we will only do that rightly and well when we do so considering Jesus. So what I mean practically What does it mean to practically like pursue a softened heart, to work towards a softened heart, and to do so considering Jesus? Here's a practical thoughts for you. When you fail, when you fail at doing that, when you see your heart's getting hardened, what do you cling to in that moment? What do you cling to? Like what's your hope in that moment for getting out of that hardened heart? Is it just working harder? Yes, you're going to have to work harder. But is that what you're clinging to? Is that where your hope is in? Well, if I can just do this, I'll get a softened heart. Or is it, ah, Christ is who I must cling to this moment. Or do you blame others in that moment? When you got a hardened heart, oh, it's just so-and-so's fault. Well, if they wouldn't have done this, then I wouldn't, be, I wouldn't feel this way. What do you cling to in that moment when you realize that you have failed? Do you cling to beating yourself up, self-chastisement or self-atonement? Or do you cling to Christ? Yes, you're going to have to work harder. Yes, but that's in response to clinging to Christ. How about when you succeed? You're like, I have a softened heart towards God. What do you cling to then? What do you point to then? Do you point to your hands, your studies? Your work, yes, all of those things are a part of the equation. What do you cling to, though? What do you point to as the ultimate reason? The worker in the house or the builder of the house? You point to the builder of the house. Yes, there is honor for you as you work hard. Yes, but the builder of the house is worthy of more honor. You cling to that, and then you work hard in light of it. There's nothing wrong with saying, I did walk faithfully in my doings, but I know that is ultimately the builder of the house, to which I owe all the credit to. Let's land here. Three, three ways to take care, three ways to see to it. The first one is this, get help from the body, meaning the church body. lest I steal the thunder. That'll be in two weeks. Number two, hold fast to our confidence. Hold fast to our confidence. We're just going to reach back here to the end of this last passage. Hold fast to your confidence. When you pick up your thoughts up out of the dumpster and put them on Jesus. I can go back to the gallery wall. Now remember, the slavery of Israel in Egypt is a picture of our slavery to sin. Now hear me, if you are a Christian, whether you realize it or not, every day since freedom from that bondage in your life has been filled with manna from the ground and water from the sky, Do you know that, Christian, do you know that? That every day you have lived in the blessing of God's kindness since he set you free from your slavery to sin. You've been in the wilderness with him for 40 years, and he's been providing for you, whether you see it or not. Every day, a life full of manna, like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey, Exodus 16, 31. That's been your life since he set you free from your sin and made you right with God. Every day, regardless of your temporal circumstances around you, you've had the chance to feast on the amazing delight of God's merciful provision of Jesus' life for yours. And now your life as an heir to the king. That's been every day for you. The issue is whether or not each day you've chosen to hold fast or how tightly you've held on to that. The issue is whether or not you've had a soft heart for you to then feast and eat on that each and every day. Listen, a key indicator in this context of a hardening or a hardened heart is shakiness and cowardice, or the opposite of confidence. Again, it could just be the beginning of a hardening, it's not an all or nothing. But see the contrast. Sturdiness and confidence, or shakiness and cowardice. So you say, well, where do you see this at? Go back to the Israelite passage. Instead of pushing forward in faith unto God, what did they want to do? They wanted to go back, they wanted to go back to slavery. They got shaky in their faith, and they became cowards wanting to go back. Do you understand? When you and I choose to embrace our hardened hearts, taking it back to the slavery of Egypt, you and I are simply cowards. It takes boldness and confidence in the Lord To walk in faithfulness to Him. The coward is the one who retreats to their sin. But the one who says, The Lord is good, He is trustworthy and true, He is faithful. I will walk in faith. It takes confidence to take that next step, to say no to that sin. And to trust that the Lord is enough. Instead of saying, oh no, we don't have any water. Let's stone Moses and get back to slavery in Egypt. They should have said, what in the world are we waiting for? Let's go where God leads. Let's walk with boldness. He's been faithful for 40 years. That's in addition to rescuing us from slavery. Let's go. What are we waiting on? Listen, God's people to be the most confident people in the entire earth as they walk faithful unto the Lord. Yes, that's going to look arrogant to the world and like bullies to weak Christians. I don't know where we got a hold of this garbage that what is most pious is heads held low. I think Satan has tricked us so that he could trample us. We should walk with confidence into all that God has called us in to. All of it. That's what he's telling Joshua. That's why we went to Joshua this past year. We should walk with confidence into the land that he has promised us. We should walk with confidence into all that God, why? Because his faithfulness will be true today and tomorrow and every day after. His grace to do what he's called us to will be there every day for the rest of our lives faithfulness in management of our finances, or bringing order to our workplaces, or parenting our children, or leading a household, or being a young single, or cutting the grass, or fixing dinner, whatever he has called us to. We should walk with with a bold confidence. Why? Because he is faithful to his word. Because he has sent Christ to secure all the success for his kingdom. It's because if we are working in his house, we are confident that the builder is going to finish the house. So that means that your work has to be unto the Lord and in line with his plan. If it is, it will succeed. And you can walk with confidence and holding fast we hold fast to our confidence that is Jesus, right? Again, this is not hold fast to, oh, I'm awesome and I can go do this and I'm great. It's no, I can go walk faithful and I will walk faithful so long as I hold on to Christ who is always faithful without any question. That will feed a believing heart. That holding fast helps protect us from a saw, from a hardening heart. You say, no, I'm not going to believe that. Yes, I will believe this. Number three, boast in our hope. Boast in our hope. And we put this in, in other words, proud of our hope. How about that? You're happy about it. Willing to talk about it. Satisfied with it. Content with it. Anxiously awaiting it. This is to boast in that hope. Someone who is content with God's hope and satisfied in God's hope will boast in that hope. Maybe to put this in practical terms. Imagine a gift you know that is just waiting for you to go get. Anybody ever had that experience? I hope so. Right? You can raise your hands. Come on. Have you had that experience? A gift that you're just anxiously waiting for. You know it's there. A gift that you're, you know you'll be very content with and extremely satisfied with. For those of you who've spent any time around me, the gift of our household's future homestead is one of those. <laughs> I talk about it frequently. We haven't taken hold of it, even though some of my junk is there. But it's there. It's waiting for us. So if you have this gift that you're anxiously awaiting, how many people are you going to tell about it? And for you shy people, how many people would you want to tell about it, but you don't? Let me take you back to the Israelite passage. Verse 2, chapter 17, "'Give us water to drink.' And Moses said to them, "'Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord?' But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up and out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? Listen, again, they had been fed manna. I know it sounds like a broken record here, but for 40 years, they didn't have to work for it. And what happens? What happens in this moment? They begin to complain. They begin to grumble. Let's go back to Hebrews 3, verse 9 and 10 where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Again, they saw his works for 40 years, but they have not known my ways. They complain, listen here, they complain as if God had done nothing but let them starve for 40 years. Listen, a key indicator of a hardened or hardening heart is a complaining and grumbling spirit. If you want to know, like, do I have a hardened heart? Is there anywhere I have a hardened heart? A complaining and grumbling spirit. Again, it could just be the beginning of hardening. It's not an all or nothing. But a complaining spirit is always an indicator of unbelief. A complaining spirit is always an indicator of unbelief. We see this plainly from this Old Testament passage. Let me quote one commentator. He said this, If we grumble about God's handling of our affairs, it must surely be because we doubt his wisdom or his goodness or even his power to lead and protect us. In short, our grumbling indicates that he is uh, unworthy to be trusted as our God Doug Wilson says this complaint is the flag of ingratitude and it waves above the center of an unbelieving heart for when they knew God they glorified him not as God neither were thankful let me say that again complaint is the faith of ingratitude, and it waves above the center of unbelieving hearts. So let me ask you this question. We're trying to like, don't harden our hearts. How do we not harden our hearts? And here's some warning signs. So let's, let's think about this. How often does your heart settle or resolve into the mood of dissatisfaction? Discontentment. I don't like this. I don't like that. I wish I had this. I wish I had that. I prefer this over that. I mean, even driving down the road, grumbling about the number of potholes, or maybe the number of drivers that seem to be smoking something. How about when building God's house? How about when building God's house? Where do you think Satan would tempt you with dissatisfaction first and foremost? The place where you go to primarily, or the place you primarily go to hear his voice. Why do you think he'd attack there? Every you know, people I've met, they get dissatisfied with, with the church, where I'm like, man, your job's got to be terrible compared to this place but you don't seem to be dissatisfied there. Maybe the paycheck you get is what you really like. Of course Satan would would press in on you here. Of course your flesh would press in on you as you are building God's house. Listen, there's a stark difference between I, I want to make something better Right, that's that's different, that's not, so I'm not saying like in God's house, as you're building the house, that that you can't ever bring up a, uh, that there's an issue or a concern, like, but it's a matter of, do I want to do that, because I want this place to be better, I want it to flourish, I want it to be faithful to God and wise, that's different than a grumbling spirit, a grumbling spirit is trying to get out of faithfulness, trying to use it as an excuse, trying to not walk forward in confidence, but to step back into slavery of Egypt. There's a big difference between those two. Listen, complaining is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. Now listen, I want you to connect these dots with me, okay? Complaining is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. If we complain and grumble it indicates a very poor knowledge of God. Let me walk this out for you. When we complain and grumble, it indicates a very poor knowledge of God. When the Israelites complained and grumbled, how did God diagnose the problem? So they complain and grumble. How does God, as the doctor, as the chief doctor, what does he say is the ultimate problem. They always go astray in their heart. They have not known what? My ways. When they complain, God says the diagnosis to the problem, the illness that they have is that they've watched my ways for 40 years, but they don't know my ways. They have a poor knowledge of God. Here's the point. When you and I complain and grumble, while you may be enjoying God's works for 40 years even, you have failed to reflect on God Himself. You are interested in what God does for you, but not God Himself. That's how They could walk with him and see his ways for 40 years, but not know his ways. They did not know him himself. They had a poor knowledge of God himself. They were not walking faithfully, building God's house in the wilderness, while considering God himself. That's how you and I work hard. And it's not legalism because we're saying in the midst of that working hard and holding fast and boasting in our hope that Jesus is the one who builds the house. He's the faithful one. He's the one that ensures the success. But when we complain and we grumble, we have a poor knowledge of God. How remarkable, again, that these Israelites did not know God after all that they had seen and heard and received from His hand. So, how do we take care? <coughs> how do you overcome complaining and grumbling? By boasting in our hope. By boasting. And it's not rocket science, it's just really hard to do, it's an easy formula. It's just really hard to do. What is our hope? That Jesus will finish his house, meaning he will finish our sanctification and bring us home to be with him. He will bring justice to this earth and make it whole again. Hope that he is building his house, even in the midst of our short-term inconveniences right now. He will build his house. He will finish it. Who will complete it. He who began a good work will see it to completion. That is why some of us don't walk boasting in hope. It's because you've seen and even enjoyed God's works, but you've not reflected on God himself. You've not connected the dots, or you have failed to continue connecting the dots, or you've gotten weak at connecting the dots and reflecting on him himself. Or maybe you've been interested in what God has done for you, but not in God himself. That's what it meant by the previous passage. That's what the author meant. Consider Jesus. Reflect upon Jesus. Have the aroma of Jesus in your soul. Fight for satisfaction in Jesus. Contentment in Jesus Christ. See, a Christian boasts in the hope that one day we will get God. God. That is our chief hope, that one day we get God. We get to live with God. We get to see God. We get to dwell with him for eternity. That's this house. That's the point of the house. It's a house that God himself would dwell in and among. And Jesus is building that house. You and I are working in it. And so every day, every moment, how do I take care to avoid a hardened heart? I hold fast to confidence in the builder and his work in me and in us. I boast in the hope that because of Jesus one day, I will get God. I trade in cowardice for confidence And trade in complaining spirit for a hopeful spirit. How do I trade it in? It's simple. Repentance and faith. Lord, forgive me for my wrong belief and my unbelief. And please give me the faith to hold fast to right belief. Again, it's that simple intellectually, but that hard to work that muscle. Only then will you experience God's rest now and by his grace enjoy his rest forever. And maybe, just maybe, instead of being that shriveled up nasty raisin, you'll be a soul full of life and vitality, full of godly confidence and hopeful boasting. Let's pray. Gracious, gracious Father, I'm so thankful that the story doesn't start and end with go work in the house. For if the story started and stopped there, we would be utterly hopeless. For we cannot just go work in the house. We need to hold fast to something as we work and we need to boast in something as we work so that we would work in confidence and faithfulness. So, Father, I thank you for Jesus, that we can hold fast of everything you have said and done through Jesus, and that we can boast in Jesus that he will finish the house. And as we walk, holding fast in confidence and boasting in our hope, we can work hard. We can protect our hearts from hardening. We can keep them soft and ready to receive your word when it has spoken to us and when we read it. I thank you that the story does not start and stop with working in the house, but it starts and stops with your glory and your gracious and merciful work through your son Jesus on our behalf.